Well, I wonder, what is the most outrageous claim that you've ever heard? Uh, perhaps it was a promise. It could have been a promise from a loved one or a colleague, a commitment that you were completely dubious about. You thought it's totally unlikely that this is going to eventuate. Perhaps a colleague promising, I absolutely promise that this project this time is going to be delivered under budget and on time. Uh, perhaps it was a promise from a loved one. That will absolutely be fixed by tomorrow afternoon, I guarantee it. Perhaps actually the most outrageous claim was a product that you've seen, a product that caught your eye, perhaps late night flicking through Instagram or the next Kickstarter project, that this would be the product that claim it will change your, your life. Uh, you've never realised how difficult cutting onions is until you have bought this knife which can even cut through a shoe. We've all heard outrageous claims and even perhaps you've been known to make a few from time to time. But the most outrageous claim ever is not a promise or a product, but the most outrageous claim of all time is about a person. That Jesus Christ, a man who lived some 2,000 years ago, went to the cross, was buried, and the third day rose again. He was dead, but now he's alive. Now, if it's not true, then Christianity, it's a total sham. It's the greatest hoax ever. Paul said that would mean that a preaching is useless and so is your faith. Paul said your faith would be futile. We would still be in our sins. But if it is true... If Jesus truly did rise from the dead, even if you're here today and you're a total sceptic, you'd have to agree that if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then that must change everything. We have to take notice as somehow the power of death, which seems inextricably and inescapably woven into the fabric of our world and of our lives, in Jesus has somehow been overcome. Now, I don't want to make this easy. I want to be clear about just how outrageous this claim is. When I say that Jesus has risen from the dead, I do not mean that Jesus is merely alive in spirit or that he's alive in our hearts. I don't just mean that Jesus's ideas still live on through his teaching. I don't just mean that Jesus's ideals still live on through the life of his community but that Jesus physically died on the cross and that he physically rose on the third day. We read in the Gospel of Luke that when the women go to the tomb, they're expecting a dead body. Of course they are. Why would they be expecting anything else? For the women weren't only the first responders to the empty tomb, but they were the final witnesses who waited and saw the Lord being crucified. So here they are, they're in the midst of grief, they haven't even considered how they're going to roll this giant stone away, but they're going with spices in order to anoint the body. But when they get there, there's a problem. The stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty. 
They're probably worried in the moment that someone has taken the body. Someone's robbing them of the last connection that they have to their Lord. If you go to a funeral on a Friday, you're not expecting the person to show up on the Sunday. But before they can give it too much thought, messengers appear before them and they say, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Even though Jesus told people time and time again, he especially told the disciples time and time again that he would be raised. No one saw it coming. No one expected it. But now as they and others come to encounter the risen Jesus face to face, then they will believe what no one anticipated, that Jesus is alive. The descriptions of their encounters with the risen Jesus are incredible. They, they spoke with him. They shared meals with him. They sat with him. They saw his wounds. And then they went to sing out the good news, even when it costed them their lives. They went from grief to belief, from scattered to sent. They didn't water down the claim, but they stepped up their proclamation because they were convinced that it was true. So today, Easter Day, today's Resurrection Day, in the time that we have, I just want to share really briefly two big implications of Jesus being the risen King. So first, because Jesus is the risen King, it means that he has won a decisive victory. Now, you might have a memory of whatever you think the greatest sporting moment in Australian history is, whatever the greatest victory in Australian sport might be. Generally, in Australia, we really love it when the underdog comes along and they overcome all the odds, everything's stacked against them, they win this incredible, grand victory against their opponent. But the decisive victory of Jesus' victory is not just over a formidable team, but it is a victory over sin and death. We can be left without a doubt that he's won. His, his true identity has been confirmed. He's who he said he was. His promises have been fulfilled. He said that he would be raised. His resurrection confirms that he's conquered sin and death. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Jesus' death wasn't merely some extraordinary example of sacrificial love, but his death was a totally and comprehensively effective sacrifice once and for all, dealing with the problem of both sin and death. So in order for Jesus to be victorious, think about this, he couldn't just deal with sin but not, not death or death but not sin because those two are linked. You can't separate them. That sin has caused such a breakdown in our lives, in our world, that the consequences are so far-reaching that it doesn't just taint life, but it destroys life. That, of course, starts right back in Genesis, that as sin entered the world, so did death. However, of course, God had a plan to set things right through his Son, that Jesus' death would be for the sin of the world. In Luke, we see the effect of Jesus' death as the curtain in the temple, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, the presence of God from the people, was torn in two, symbolising that through his death, a way was being opened up for a relationship with God. But if Jesus stayed dead, 
it wouldn't be much of a victory. It'd be totally hollow. It would mean that the king is dead, that we couldn't be sure, the relationship wasn't possible, the forgiveness is not permanent, and that he died as a sacrifice, but that sacrifice simply wasn't adequate. But because even death could not hold him down, we can be absolutely certain that what he did was sufficient, that we are forgiven, that we are loved. We read in the, the book of Acts, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Every now and then at home when we're mucking around with, with the kids and the three kids all pile on me, I don't even have enough strength to get up out from under their grasp and them holding me down, but not even death could hold Jesus down. Jesus' resurrection is the evidence that sin has been defeated because even the bonds of death have been broken. Paul puts it like this, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Paul is teasing death. He's not pretending death isn't real, nor is he making light of how serious of an enemy death was. But he's saying that now, because Jesus has died and has been vindicated in his resurrection, that Jesus' victory was so comprehensive and decisive that the sting of death, it's gone. Death's days are numbered. Death no longer will have the last say. That as we put our trust in Jesus, not only are we forgiven, but we too, like him, will be raised. We have a secure future. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all we made alive. So hear the promise here. What God did for Jesus, he will also do for us. The image here, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit. So the images of a farmer looking out on the fields, waiting for the harvest. It turns out that I don't know a lot about farming, actually. But what I do know, that as the first tomato of the crop comes along, what should you expect? More tomatoes. Jesus is the first fruit. If we want to know what awaits us, we simply look to him. It's like the moment when the sun cracks the horizon, you know, the day which is to follow. That's what Jesus' resurrection is for us. And so when our lives are connected to him, it's like hitching a ride to the Jesus train. And it means not only that our sin has been put to death through his death, but that his resurrection drags ours in its trail. That what awaits us is not death, but life forever with him. Now, when we talk about life, the life which awaits, we're not talking about some sort of spiritual round, wafting around on a cloud or something like that, but physical and bodily resurrection. And not just for us, but for the whole of creation will be made new. Can you imagine what that would be like? No more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more evil, no more viruses. 
death is like the bully in the playground, goes around, throwing its weight around, robbing us of loved ones, enslaving us to shape our lives to its tune. But the claim of the Bible, the claim of the gospel, is that as surely as Jesus was raised from the dead, all who put their trust in Jesus, well, they'll be raised too. Now, of course, we still experience the pain of death right now. Whilst we can be certain of the future that awaits us when Jesus returns, we're more than aware that whilst death has been defeated, it's not yet been destroyed. We live in the now, but not yet. It's like being seated for dinner and you can smell the meal in the next room. It's like living between Good Friday and Easter Day. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we know the directory we're on. And the way that we can take hold of that promise is simply by turning to the risen King and putting our trust in him. That's why after revealing himself to the disciples, teaching, proving that it was really him, he sent them to do what? To preach to all nations, starting in Jerusalem, a repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name. Forgiveness of sins is possible through him. That the way to be part of his decisive victory over death, the way to be secure forever, is simply by repenting, simply by turning to Jesus. When you're in relationship with Jesus, his victory becomes your victory. When you're in relationship with Jesus, his life becomes your life. Now, if you hear all this, these are massive claims, and you think, I'm not really sure about this. I just want to encourage you that you're actually in really good company. The disciples, at first, they thought it was nonsense. Luke tells us that. They were reluctant. Sometimes we can think, well, actually, the disciples were desperate to believe anything, that somehow they would have believed anything. But that's just not the case. And as Leon Morris puts it, the apostles were not men poised on the brink of belief and needing only a shadow of an excuse before launching forth into a proclamation of resurrection. They were utterly sceptical. Whereas they kept on looking at the evidence before them, they began to see clearly, and then they believed. Maybe if you're really honest, and you can just share this with yourself, you don't have to share it with anyone else, but maybe if you're really honest, you've actually really never weighed up the claims of Jesus. Perhaps you've never really given Christianity a chance. And I just want to invite you today, would you? We'd love to support you with that. In a few weeks, we're going to be starting a really great course, Alpha. You can do it online or in person. And it's a really terrific way to explore the big questions of life. You can weigh up the claims and the implications of who Jesus was and who he claimed to be. Worst case scenario, if you don't think it's true, you've wasted a few hours. But if you come to believe what millions others have been convinced of over thousands of years, then it won't just change your life, it'll change your eternity. It might be an outrageous claim, but the implications are even more phenomenal. For the moment you put your trust in Jesus, 
It's the moment that you get caught up in the forgiveness that he's won and the life forever that he's begun. You can stop worrying like this life is all there is. You can stop worrying about what you might miss out on. You can get off the treadmill of performance. You can abandon regret and guilt of what you have or haven't done. You can have a gritty hope that pervades even the hardest things in life. You can be freed to show a costly and sacrificial compassion to those around you. You can start reveling in a relationship with the one who loves you, created you, and has redeemed you. And you can live with a purpose that points to a hope for which you can be sure. You can accept the reality that you're more imperfect than you ever feared, yet more loved than you can possibly imagine. My favourite movie of all time is the uh, film Life is Beautiful. Uh, I once lent the DVD to a friend. I said, you've got to watch this. It's an amazing movie. And when they handed it back to me, they said, you didn't warn me that it is in Italian. So that's the warning now. As I say, it's my favourite movie, okay? That's the warning. But in this movie, in the film, it tells this beautiful story of an Italian Jewish family, a father, mother and son. And they are tragically sent to a concentration camp during World War II separated from each other, at one point in the film, the husband risks his life and he broadcasts a song. It was his and his wife's song. He broadcasts it over the PA system of the camp. And the juxtaposition in that moment between this beautiful song, which is encapsulates their life and their love, against the horrors of the camp for which they could not escape, that juxtaposition and contrast couldn't be greater. Yet somehow in that moment, despite the darkness and death with which they were surrounded, their hearts in that moment sung a song of hope. Today we rejoice that whilst the soundtrack of our world is decay. The day that Jesus rose, the first note of a new song of life was struck. And it's been reverberating throughout history ever since. It's the tune of every heart of those who have put their trust in Jesus. And the day that Jesus returns, the anthem of sin and death will be no more. And the only soundtrack of the risen King will remain. And Jesus is inviting us into his song that we might put his, our trust in him and rejoice in him and be secure forever. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the phenomenal news that Jesus is risen. We thank you that it's because of Easter that we can have a certain hope, a hope that isn't dependent on ourselves, but dependent on Jesus' death and resurrection. We thank you so much that his death and resurrection are sin-shattering, death-defeating, and that has changed the course of history. Lord, we pray that please help us to share that good news that would break into our weary world, that even though we live between your resurrection and your return, that you would sustain us and help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. 
Lord, I pray for anyone here today who's just not sure about these claims, these outrageous claims that Jesus truly died, that he truly raised. Father, I pray them, pray for spirit, that you might move them to examine the evidence, to weigh up these claims. Lord, please help us to see who Jesus truly is, that he is the risen king. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.